If you've got a copy of God's Word, please turn to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, That's where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 12. And if you'd like to share this message with somebody, you can find it on our uh, website or podcast or whatever. Um, The title of today's message is Unforgivable. So I was talking to somebody earlier this morning, and, and I think... This text maybe could be one of those texts where it could be three sermons or one sermon or five sermons or or whatever. So I'm just going to do the best with the intelligence God has given me. Um, And I'm sure you may have heard other sermons about it before, but the fact of the matter is when when we look at this text, the thing that stood out to me was this idea of this unforgivable sin. And we'll get there, and you guys will see what I'm talking about here in just a minute. But uh, I just want to ask you, and don't, don't put a show of hands up, because I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with, with you for me. But, but how many of us have ever thought to ourselves, you know, I've, I've done something, said something, either recently or in your past, where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's, who's unforgivable. And I just want you to know that if you today, or somebody in your life, is struggling with that, I pray that you might get something out of today's message and that this might be a message that you could share with them that they might also be encouraged. Um, before I became a Christian, and I've talked to some of you and shared with you my, my um, testimony, I know some of you think, you know, hey, well, you, you weren't so bad. You were kind of like any other guy. And then some of you think, oh, man, I, I can't believe you are our pastor, you know. And, uh, and there's any stretch in between there. But I often, I'll go back and forth with, with this struggle in my own heart, my own life. And, and so um, I think that this is maybe what we need to hear today. But what I want for you to get from this is this. When we encounter Jesus, we either humbly repent and receive his mercy, or we harden our hearts to him and therefore remain in God's judgment. I think that's really what the point of chapter 12 is about, as Jesus talks about this unforgivable sin also. And so as we get into God's word, if you have a copy and you're in Matthew chapter 12, before we get into what's on my heart for you this morning, let's let's go to God in prayer. God, our Father in heaven, we do come before you and we ask that you would bless our hearts today that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers as well. God, we thank you that you have given us this text in Matthew chapter 12. We thank you that Matthew recorded it for our behalf. We know that your word is truth, and in it is power. And so we ask that your spirit might speak to our hearts by it this very day. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. So here's the way I see this text break out. Firstly, we're given some great news. This great news is found in Matthew 12, 1 through, uh, I'm sorry, 6 through 8. It's the text I want to take you to. The three things I think you're going to see in this is there's a new covenant, a new law, and a new sense of worship. So as we're gearing up to Matthew 6 through 8, and if you're a note taker and that was too fast for you, watch the video and pause it. 
okay? Um, Matthew 12, 1 through 5, he's going through these grain fields. It's the Sabbath day. Sabbath day is a holy day, the day of rest, okay? It's interesting that this is right on the back of Matthew 11, not just because numbers come in order, but it's interesting because he says, come to me, my burden's light, I'm going to give you rest, and then we're, we're met with this Sabbath day experience that is supposed to be a day of rest for the Jewish people, okay? Now, also, if you're a fan of YouTube and you get on, um, I think it's called The Bible Project, these guys have a video about the Sabbath. I would encourage you to, to Google that and find that. It's really good, but it talks about how the Sabbath is a part of seven days and then seven years and then this big time of jubilee, which is pointing forward towards Christ, who ultimately we find our rest in. And that's why I think Jesus is doing this. So it's on the Sabbath. They're going through the fields, and you can follow along in your copy of God's Word before we get to 6. But they're there. The Pharisees kind of point the finger at them. They're doing what they shouldn't be doing. And, um, and Jesus defends them, and he refers to David and the priests. He refers to David in, in 1 Samuel that we just covered recently, if you've been coming to Allegan Bible Church for a while. We covered for Samuel how David got the presence, the bread of the presence when he was fleeing from Saul. He ate it. He wasn't supposed to. Jesus also talks about the priests, how on the Sabbath they are still supposed to go in and, and do sacrifices and how they still are guiltless on the Sabbath, which comes to us through verses 6 through 8, where he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So he's talking about David. He's talking about the priests. He's talking about the temple worship. And he says, listen, I tell you something that the temp- greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here's where I see these things, the new covenant, the new law, and the new worship. The first is this, this new covenant. Now as we go through the book of Matthew, you're going to see it very clearly in places like Luke 22:20, if you want a cross-reference, or in later epistles, uh, Hebrews 12, 24 where it talks about Jesus is making this cup of this new covenant. We, we celebrate it once a month here. The first Sunday of every month, we celebrate communion. It is the tradition of the church to do this until Christ brings his bride home with him. But the reason we celebrate that is because it's in his blood and by his body that was this cut, this new covenant with God's people. And so he says right here, there's something greater than the temple. There's something better than that old covenant. See, we have to remember what the temple is for the Jews. So way back, pushing all the way back, you have Moses who brings these people out of Israel, brings them into the Sabbath rest of God. He tells them to make this tent, tabernacle. You remember that? And that's where God's presence dwells, in the temple. It would be as if this building, picture it that way, this stage would be the, the holy of holies. My priest is able to go. And this is where God's presence dwells. And then there's the, the court where the, where the Jews are able to go, just men, usually, okay, in this, in this outer court. And then you have the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles and the, and the women and stuff like that. Yeah, what, whatever you feel about that, that's how it was. And so here's how this works. It says there's a greater thing than the temple. What he's saying is, is before there was only one place you could experience God. Before, there was only one person who could be in the presence of God. But now you have something greater. You have Christ. You have daily fellowship. In fact, you have minute-by-minute fellowship with Christ. 
That was a spot for an amen. I mean, I'll, I'll, throw, a, I'll throw a better one and you guys can try. Here you go. Minute by minute. Something greater than the temples here it is the Christ, the one who they have been waiting for. So this is this new covenant we see, but we also see with that a new law. You see, part of the reason that these Pharisees and these scribes were pointing the finger at Jesus is because they knew the law. But of course, not better than Jesus, right? I mean, he is the law, right? But there's a new law in town, just like there's a new covenant in town. So you have this new covenant, this new law. The old covenant is now passed away. There's now a new covenant. With that becomes a new law, this law of grace. Now, Paul will talk about this and say, well, should we continue to sin that this grace should increase? He says, no, of course not. Jesus defines this new law as as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, which you may remember if you've been joining us for a while. Chapter 7, verse 12 is this idea of this golden rule, right? Do unto others as you've had them do unto you. We'll later see another uh, one comes to them. He says, you know, how do you interpret the law? Uh, Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor of yourself. And this is all the law and the prophets. But going all the way back to the Old Testament moment, Jeremiah Prophet 31.33. Also, in the New Testament, Hebrews 8.10 and Hebrews 10.16, if you're a note taker. Jeremiah 31.33 says that they're looking forward to the day where God is going to write the law on the hearts and the minds of his people. Where they will be with God forevermore. And so Jeremiah 31, 33 is being fulfilled in Christ. That's why he's better than the temple and he's better than the law. He fulfills the law. And so there's a new law, the law of grace, the law of mercy. And so these Pharisees, again, this is right on the heels of, come to me all you who are burdened and who are heavy laden. All these men and women who buy The law of the Ten Commandments, which of course is still stand, that's how we understand that we are sinners and we need Christ our Savior, but also the the priestly law, the written law, that you can't go through the field and slough off a few kernels of grain and pop them in your mouth as you're walking, because that's work. In fact, even today, Jewish men and women who are practicing this have their lights on timers, so on the Sabbath the lights will pop on and pop off, so they won't even have to flip a switch. They'll have food made ahead of time so that they can eat that. They don't, they don't do anything. It's supposed to be a day completely of rest. And so these guys call them out on it. They say, you're breaking the law. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Not only is there a new covenant with a better temple, there's also a new law, a law of grace. And so he reminds them of this Old Testament scripture. You can find it in Hosea 6, 6, or Micah 6, 6 through 8. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, the, the message that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is the same message that he's saying here. Listen, you don't get it. I don't want you to tithe mint, dill, and cumin. What I want for you to do is rend your hearts. What I want is your innermost being, not your outward show. Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Excuse me. 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? These are all questions, and he answers it. He said, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Which brings us to the final point here in this section. There's a new covenant, there's new law, but there's also a new worship. Because although these Jews, these Pharisees, were accusing Jesus, rest assured that, they're, that they were also desiring for God to be appropriately worshipped. And so while they were doing it wrong, while their hearts were wicked in it, the law was designed in such a way to help us worship appropriately. Remember Genesis, going all the way back then. Six days he worked, the seventh he rested, so he said, remember this Sabbath day, because it's holy. It's a day of rest, it's a day of rejuvenation, it's a day to focus, because all this other time you have all these other things and concerns, and that's why we prayed this morning, God, will you help us to have it be a day of rest and focus on you? And so there's new worship. Where now, he says, we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. That's in John 4, as he's talking to them, 23 and 24. God's looking for those who are going to worship truly and not just out of legality. I would put it to you this way. Do you come to church because of your relationship with Jesus? Or do you come to church because it's part of your religion? Do you come to church because it's part of your tradition? Because grandma or grandpa or aunt and uncle, or mom and dad come to church, or do you come to church because you recognize that the body of Christ would be incomplete without you, and you need the fellowship of the saints? Good. <laughs> Romans 14.5 will talk to us about Sabbath days and how some people think some days are better than others, and let us be convinced in our own minds, and so... You know, that's a struggle that we have with, with folks that have certain days that are better than other days. And so maybe your kids are going to ask you, well, how come, how come if it says keep the Sabbath, how come we're not having church on Saturday instead of Sunday? And there's, that's a whole other sermon, a whole other theology lesson. You can buy me coffee and we'll talk about it if you want. But, but the fact of the matter is there's a new sense of worship. God wants your hearts, not just your day. He wants all of your days. He wants all of your life. And so in John 2, 18 through 22... We go on from there, and they ask him what kind of sign that they're going to see. And he's going to talk about this temple. Remember here he says, there's a new temple. And then later in John, in separate gospel, you know, he talks about this. He says, you destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. Well, this is the same sign he's going to give these guys in this text. So in Matthew 12, 9 through 37, as we continue through the text, it's not going to be up here, but you can read it along for your week, and I pray that you would, but... He heals a man with a withered hand, and he says, it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. Again, still talking about this new covenant, new law, new worship, this new practice that is being ushered in by Christ. So he heals this man. They want to kill Jesus. Jesus withdraws from there, kind of invoking this section of text in Isaiah 42, 1 through 3, where it says this was to fulfill the prophet Isaiah, who says, you know, he's not going to snuff out a smoldering wick or, or break a bruised reed, which is his mercy and his grace upon us. Those, uh, and, and other things like that. There's, there's probably a whole other sermon there. He talks about how he's the good servant of God, right, and how he's fulfilling servanthood not only to God but to man and doing these things. And then talks about how a demon-oppressed man was brought to him and how the Pharisees and the scribes... Uh, can you see how there's a lot that we've got to cover here that we've just got to kind of pick and work through this? I'm sorry, but 
That's just how it is. You've got a copy of the word. You read it. And so there's this demon-possessed man that's brought there, and they say it's by, it's by the Beelzebub that he drives out demons. And he says, no, it's because the kingdom has actually come. The kingdom is upon you. Which he then gives us this great warning in Matthew 12, 30 through 33. This is a great warning, but I, but I want for you to see, even in this warning, we see three things. There's unmerited favor, there's an unforgivable sin, and there's an unbelievable offer. So as you look at this text, those are the three things I want you to see as he gives us this great warning. So if you can travel with me to Matthew 12, 30 through 33, it says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So I want to show you, firstly, unmerited favor. And at first glance, you're probably like me, and you're like, where's that, Pastor? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Here's where it is in verse 31 and in 32. He says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. So you remember when I asked you that question, how many of you are here and you struggle with thinking, you know, maybe I'm the one, maybe I'm the one who's done just a little too much, gone a little too far, I've said a few too many things, not according to Jesus. Jesus says every sin. Let me ask you, which sin does that leave out then? That, that leaves out the one you... No. He tells us every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. No, you're a person, right? He also says here in 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. This is grace. This is God's unmerited favor upon you. The Bible is very, very clear when it talks to us about, in places like Romans and others, that there is no goodness in us. Jesus will tell that. He says, good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. And so if you happen to be one of those who struggle sometimes with, maybe I'm the one who's the only one who's unforgivable. I'm the one who's unforgivable. I'm here to tell you today, none of us are worthy. You pick whoever's your hero of the faith. They're not worthy. It doesn't matter. They've said all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us seek after our own. None of us do good, not even one. It goes on to tell us that the Evil is in our tongues. We're poisonous. We're venomous. There's wickedness. It tells us our good works are like filthy rags. You can, you can do a search theologically on what that means and how that works out. But he tells us here in this passage, as he's about to explain to us the only things that really are unforgivable, which is going to make very logical sense to you in a minute. If you've ever wondered about this, I'm, I'm here to, I guess, pull back the veil. Not that there's anything in me, but it just talks about that here. But Romans 5, 8 through 11, God's love was showed to us that while we were still sinners, he saved us from wrath. 
Psalm 103, 11, and 12, as far as the east is from the west, so our sin shall be removed from us. And as far as the heavens is above the earth, so is God's steadfast love to us. Or John 3, 15 through 17, which you know, contains John 3, 16, which I know that you already know. Whoever believes in him will be saved. God loves us and gave his son for us for the purpose of saving us. That's unmerited favor. But the second part is then is the unforgivable sin. So what is that? What does that look like? How do we understand that? So it says, and we might ask the question, or maybe you're here asking the question, well, wait a minute, I must have done that. That must have been what I've done. Well, let's see. Because he does say here in 31 and 32, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Or in 32, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So what does that mean? Well, John 3.18, I think, hits it, and we sometimes forget that. So memorize more of Scripture, not just a few verses. Try to memorize more of Scripture or read Scripture in context. John 3.18 says, whoever does not believe is already condemned. You see, the fact of the matter is, is places in Acts 4.12 tell us that salvation is in no one else. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Isaiah 5.20 says, For those who call evil good and good evil, woe to them. And so do you want to know what the unforgivable sin is that Jesus is talking about here? If you read it in context with the rest of Matthew, I know we've kind of been skipping through, but I hope for you as you go home, you will be as a Berean and check me on the text. But what he's talking about here is these scribes and these Pharisees are telling Jesus that the things that he is doing are actually wicked. How can they be saved? You see, the statement that I made when we first began this, in case you forgot, was this. I'll read it to you. When we encounter Jesus, we either humbly repent and then therefore receive his mercy, or we harden our hearts to him and remain in God's judgment. So here's the thing. The unforgivable sin is not recognizing Jesus as Savior. The unforgivable sin is not coming to Jesus. The unforgivable sin is being so prideful that you say, no, I'm just going to get in on my own merits. I'm not that bad anyway. And who do you think you are that you're going to tell me that I needed somebody to die for me? How can you be saved from that? I mean, think of firefighters or ambulance workers. And you have a limb that's been dismembered. And they show up and they say, you're bleeding out. We need to take you to the emergency room immediately, and you, like Monty Python, say, "'Tis but a scratch." It's not going to work out. If you are so ignorant as to not realize your state before a holy God, then there is no salvation for you. And so I want to encourage you by saying this. If you struggle with your worthiness of salvation, I think that points to a humble heart that Jesus has said fulfills Isaiah where he says a smoldering wick he's not going to put out and a bruised reed he's not going to break. Instead, he ushers you into a new covenant of new law, of new worship with unmerited favor. And then he ends this section with what I would consider an unbelievable offer. 
Verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. This unbelievable offer that he gives is simply this. All you who are labor and who are heavy burden, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, one that's greater than the temple is here, come to me. If you're thirsty for righteousness, come to me and I will fill your cup. If you want peace, he'll supply, he'll supply it that passes beyond understanding. If you want hope or joy or salvation, he applies it and he applies it in abundance. And in fact, he tells us here that by our words we're going to be justified in this next section. He goes on and he says this, and then by our words we'll be justified or condemned. And so it's this dichotomy of the theology between predestination and free will. And I understand it probably as good as you, and I can defend it or explain it probably as good as you, because in my mind I can only go so far. We have the free will to choose Christ and to make the tree good and its fruit good by submitting to Christ, or we have the freedom to make the tree bad and the fruit bad by saying we don't need Christ. But also at the same time, before the foundations of the world, he has chose those who would be his, and he also says that he will lose none of them. This unbelievable offer we see in Romans, if you know the Romans road, God is for us, and so therefore who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, and so therefore he will also give us all things. Christ was raised and is interceding on our behalf, and nothing can now separate us. That's a cliff notes of Romans 8, 31 through 39. As we also look in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Sin in Adam, but yet life in Christ. Justification and righteousness in Christ. And that where law increases, sin increases, but yet grace increases all the more. This is an unbelievable offer, the gospel. And Ephesians 2, 8-9 through tell us that it is a free gift to you. Meaning that if you came this morning, or if you're listening to this, and you felt like you are somehow unforgivable, that Christ says, by no means. And how do we know this is true? Because this is a message that is unbelievable offer, right? It's, it's, it's almost unfathomable. Well, we can praise the Lord that he gives us a great sign. He proves this to be true in himself. And so if you can turn to Matthew 12, 38 through 42 for our last section here, I want to show you the condition of these folks. I want to contem- condemn Congratulate, whatever. I should have used a different C. I can't say it, I guess. The condition, the commendation, and the consideration. That's the danger you get with whatever that is called when you make them all the same letter. That's it. Thank you. Isn't it cool that God uses even the stupid people in his wisdom? Isn't it? Man, let no man be puffed up, right? Okay, so here's a great sign that God gives to us in 38 through 42. Let some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So firstly, I want to look at the condition. I want to contrast the condition between these Pharisees and scribes and these Ninevites and this queen. Firstly, understand the condition of their hearts. What was keeping them apart was either pride or humility. Remember, that was the beginning of this whole sermon as well, right? When we encounter Jesus, we either humbly repent and receive his mercy, or we harden our hearts and remain in God's judgment. See, this is the thing. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they were unforgivable. Not because their sin was so much greater, but rather their pride was unshakable. And instead, what Jesus does is he gives them the sign. He says, you want a sign? I've just healed a withered man. I just raised somebody from the dead. I mean, let's just look at this chronologically, right? I've been in your synagogues. I've been teaching God's word. I've been exposed. Y'all can't even imagine. It's time after time. He's healing people, raising people. They know this. And yet still they're asking for a sign. He says, that shows me your heart, that nothing I do is ever going to be good enough. But, I, but I'll tell you what, you wicked and adulterous person, who your pride and say, well, how can we trust in Jesus? Listen, here's the sign that you're going to see. Just like Jonah was in a fish for three days, so I'm going to be buried in the earth for three days too. And so the contrast that we see here in 1 Kings, by the way, 10, 1 through 13, or 2 Chronicles 9, 1-12 through 12 with this queen, is she hears this word. Now, she's a queen. She can do whatever she wants. She doesn't have to go. She is not beholden to Solomon. Not only that, but as a queen, doesn't she have her own ruling that she has to do? She has her own authority, her own power. She has her own uh, responsibilities in her own kingdom. But look what it says. It says that she went to the ends of the earth, which means, I don't know if you can interpret this for yourself, it was a far trip, okay? She went a long way, and it probably cost a lot of money to get there. Not only did she go by herself, it says if you read the section of 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13 that Jesus is referencing here, which, by the way, also says that Jesus is therefore affirming the truth and validity of Solomon and this queen, that this is a real historic event. But that's a side note says that she came with a whole caravan of people, and she brought spices. And if you read the text, it says, when she came, there was, there was never again such an influx of the wealth of the spice trade than when she came. So, and Solomon was the richest king who has ever lived in the history, and so we can't even begin to fathom the barge loads of spice that this queen was bringing in to then give to Solomon. And it says that she would question him day and night and that he would answer and answer and answer and never miss a beat. And at the end, she said, it's got to be God Almighty who appointed you because never have I ever seen anybody like you and I praise your God for you. And so she gave him all these gifts and then Solomon turned around and blessed her in return and she went back with almost just as much things as she came there with. So she lost absolutely nothing but gained everything because now she had knowledge of the one true God. 
Or look at Jonah and these Ninevites. It says that this city was three days' journey across, which in that day and age is a big city. And it also says that they were a wicked people. So wicked, in fact, that Jonah, and we can judge him for his hardness of heart, I guess, if you want to, but, you know, glass houses, right? So Jonah was called to go there, and they were so wicked, he didn't want to, he'd rather flee and leave. In fact, they were so wicked, Jonah would have rather the sailors throw him into a raging ocean than go to Nineveh. Bad dudes. So he goes there and he walks into the middle of the city. It says like a day and a half journey. Well, you do the math. If it's three, he walks into the middle. He proclaims that they're going to die. And what happens? It says everyone in the city, a three-day wide city, repents. The king gives an edict, repent in sackcloth and ashes. Can you see the difference in the condition of these people's hearts, the Pharisees and the scribes, who have the Christ in the flesh working miracles and still ask for a sign, and then these who have only hoped and dreamed and longed for the Christ to be there and yet repent in sackcloth and ashes and believe the wisdom of God? And so I want you to consider them this morning because that covers both the condition and the commendation. I want you to consider an angel of the Most High God in Matthew 28.6 is going to report, He is not here. He is risen just as He said He would. Or 1 Corinthians 15.4, which says, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, what Jesus is doing here in this section of chapter 12 is He's saying, there is a greater law, there is a greater covenant, there is a greater prophet, there is a greater priest, and there is a greater king, and it is me, Christ Jesus. And again, this is right on the heels of him saying, come to me, all you who are labor and who are heavy laden. Come to me, all of you who feel unforgivable. Come to me, all of you who have secret sin that you wish you could get rid of, that you can lay it at the foot of the cross. Come to me, all of you who would, because any of you and all of you who would, he's going to accept because he tells us that when we encounter Jesus, we either humbly repent and receive his mercy. As a guarantee, every sin will be forgiven man. Or we harden our hearts and we say, I just need more proof. I just need more proof. I need more of a sign. I need more of this before I can possibly believe this. It sounds too hard for me to believe or too good for me to believe. Or I'm not that bad of a person. I didn't need this. Or, or who do you think that you are sending somebody innocent to die for me? That doesn't sound loving or that doesn't sound just. Or I'm going to judge God based on you know whatever he wants to do. But he tells us in here too that Like I talked about, it is by our words that we will be judged. We'll have to give an answer for every word. Now, that's a whole separate sermon about watching your mouth, right? That's fine. But when when I think of what he talks about there is that by our words we're going to be condemned or justified. I think Paul picks it up rightly in Romans 10.9 when he says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is a sign, you will be saved. So let me ask you, if you feel unforgivable, do you believe that 
Romans 10, 9? Because Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then perhaps, perhaps you're a little hard-headed like me and you said, well, yeah, I say that and I believe that, but am I still really forgiven? I would take you to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, which says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you are not guilty of, because you can't say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that he's raised from the dead unless you actually have the Holy Spirit. And so the only unforgivable sin is so much pride that we never come to Christ. Who entreats you, as I would today, come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for he will give you rest. Because when we encounter Jesus, we will either humbly repent and then guaranteed to receive his mercy, or we harden our hearts and unfortunately remain in his judgment. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you have offered us salvation in Christ. It is by your good pleasure, by your mercy, by your amazing, wise counsel that you have decided that this would be the means by which we could have fellowship and relationship with you. That with all the things that we do not understand because we are finite in your wisdom and in your glory, as we search out the highest of heavens and the lowest of the abyss, Lord, we do not know nor can we understand your wisdom and your way. Yet, we can cling to the fact that you do not lie, you do not change, and your word has told us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God's raised him from the dead, that we will be saved that there is no evil that we can perpetrate on this globe that can keep us from you, and it does not matter how wicked or intensely evil our thought life or our behavior might have been, that you come bearing this offer of ultimate forgiveness and acceptance. And so we thank you and we praise you for this word of truth. We ask that it might be an encouragement to our hearts as well as to those who we know who need it. We would pray for them, Lord. And it's in your name we praise you and worship you for you're worthy. Amen.